As you can see, the Lord has been very gracious to us as we serve overseas. Um, we, as uh, your pastor, your dear pastor, Ken mentioned, we've been there over 10 years, and I've been uh, ministering there over 10 years, and we have not had any incident. But some of the men I train, they have suffered much for their faith. One of the pastors I train not only has been in prison, but his back bears the scar marks of being flogged for his faith. And the amazing thing is as I, I train these folks, and as they look to me to teach them from God's word, a lot of times I'm, I'm just amazed at what they go through. And I, I don't understand how I, as an American, a North American, am able to f- serve and teach these people who have went through so much more than I have. And so when I come back on furlough, a lot of people ask me, you're in this country that does not recognize the Lord Jesus Christ, a country that restricts the freedom of religion. And they say, how do you survive there? And quite honestly, what I'm going to share with you actually applies to all of us because even in this great country, our freedoms are slowly being eroded away. As you live in this country, as you sojourn here, you realize that the things that you cherish, the Christ Jesus that you love so much, is being despised more and more in this country. So as we sojourn here as this world, we, we begin to realize that we are truly not citizens here, but in another place. But while we are here, while the Lord Jesus Christ tarries, we are here. And, and Christ knows that. He knows that we are going to face all this. And it's not going to get any easier. And as you live out your lives, you wonder, what's it going to be like for your children? But thankfully, the Lord knows us better than we know ourselves. The Lord knows the situation better than we do. And he has given us everything we need in his word. And so, as he prepared to depart from this world, he knew exactly what his disciples needed, what words of encouragement, what truth they needed to carry on their lives, to live out their lives the way he wanted them to, with encouragement and joy. And today we're going to study from the book, the Gospel of John, to learn from that. Together as we study it, when we come to the Gospel of John, it is a very unique book in God's Word. And it is a gospel that uniquely shows that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. It consistently shows that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is very important. Why? Well, culturally, we can, we can look at it. If a Jewish person read this, they would know, uh, if a Jewish person read this, they know they have a certain way of identifying people in their culture. If, if a Jewish man wanted to introduce himself to somebody in those days, how would he introduce himself? He would say that he was so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. Remember we read in the scriptures, Simon bar Jonah? That means Simon, the son of Jonah. And when, when a Jewish man said this, he was literally saying that he considered himself as equal 
to as if his father was standing before who he was introducing them to. Uh, this week, as I had the privilege of staying with your pastor's parents, especially his father, uh, he comes himself Bo, uh, Bobo, Bobo, sorry, Bobo. And I, I wondered where, when I met Ken, what really amazed me was his sense of humor, his quick wit. And it wasn't until I met his father I realized that where it came from. And I tell you, I, I haven't met a man with a sharper mind. I am a younger man, but before this man, I feel very old and slow. But there, as I looked at uh, Mr. Ramey, I could, I, I, when I could understand who his son was. Because his son was just like his father. And this is the same with Christ. Remember in John 15, 17, he said, But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. You know, the amazing thing in the entire Gospel of John, Jesus never directly said, I am God. But when he made this statement that he called God his father, the Jews wanted to kill him because they considered blasphemy, because that's like saying that he is God. And this is very important. This is a very important truth because God and only God can save man. Only God can save us from our sins. And therefore, we can say that God can help us in our lives, in the problems and the challenges we face in this life. So as we study through the Gospel of John, what we find is their interweaving of the deity of Christ and life. And life that's given to us more abundantly. Our lives are dependent on who Christ is and what our relationship with him is. Since God provides and gives us new life in Christ, he can and must also determine how we must live our lives. And, and, and we know that this is the entire difference between true Christianity and all other religions, all other cults, all other pseudo-Christianity, all philosophies of life, any sciences, the truth about Jesus Christ. And even in the country where I serve, this is the difference between the government church and the underground church. It's all about Christ. Because there are two subjects which cannot be preached or taught in this country in the government church. The first is the resurrection of Christ. The second is the return of Christ. Because they don't want the resurrection of Christ to be taught because they don't want the people to know that he is Lord and he is God. But John makes it crystal clear in his gospel that Jesus Christ is indeed the Son of God, that he is deity, he is divine. He is life. And only through him we can have this life-saving relationship. And John uses many ways to illustrate that to us. He helps us try to understand who this Son of God is, who this Jesus Christ is. He uses many metaphors, many I am metaphors throughout the Gospel of John. In John 6, 35, he says, I am the bread of life. In, in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. 
In John 7, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. In John eleven twenty five, 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, 6, one of our favorite verses when we want to bring someone to know Christ, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In the very last recorded I am statement in the Gospel of John, Jesus makes it personally to his disciples. And he uses this last metaphor to tell us of his divine, beneficial, life-giving relationship with his true disciples. In John chapter 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine, vine dresser. This is the final I am metaphor that Jesus Christ uses before he goes to the cross, and it is one of a grapevine. And he's very specific when he uses this last metaphor. He uses this, this metaphor of the vine to describe the nature of the relationship between himself and his disciples, and within that context, the relationship of his disciples to his father, the vine dresser. Because he wanted the disciples to understand what their relationship with him is. And because he knew that he was about to go to the cross and leave them, he wanted to, them to understand so that this relationship will impact their lives. And that impacting the lives that it would produce in the life of his disciples what he wanted it to produce. Why was this so important to Jesus? Because he knew that he would be leaving his disciples to go to be at the right hand of God the Father. He had announced his intimate departure to his disciples at the end of John chapter 13. And so he needed to instruct his, his disciples what he expected of them after he left to prepare them for his departure. And only the Gospel of John uniquely records the upper room discourse so that we know the final instructions of Christ to his disciples before he went to do his work on the cross. And he would be leaving behind his disciples. Well, not just any disciples, his true disciples. Because as we read this account, we realize that Judas is not there. He had already left them. And he had gone about his business of betraying Jesus Christ. It's also significant to note that Jesus did not institute the Lord's Supper until after Judas left. Judas did not participate in the fellowship of the Lord's table, in the breaking of bread and the drinking of wine, because Judas was a son of perdition. So he did not communion with his Lord that night because Jesus wasn't really his Lord. So these are the part of the instructions that the Lord Jesus Christ left with his true disciples. After the first communion, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and before he left them to go to a cross, and to go where they could not follow. And this is very significant because Jesus knew that initially after he had left to go to the cross that they would be demoralized and in disarray. In Matthew 26, 31, it tells us this. Then Jesus said to them, 
You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. He knew that they would need instructions for when they came back together in this world so that they could serve him. So this was a very desperate, neatly needed instruction for how they were to live after Christ had departed from them. Before the cross, they had been physically with Christ for three, around three years. And after Christ died on the cross and was buried and resurrected, their relationship with him would be irrevocably changed. And so what kind of change would their relationship with the Lord go through? What would they need to know to sustain that relationship? How would his death affect their relationship with him, with others? So today, we are going to explore what the basis of Christ-filled relationships is. What is the foundation for each and every relationship that we will ever have in our entire lives? What is the secret to having the right relationship with people? Or in other words, how should we live? How should Christians live? How should followers of Christ live? So when we come to the Gospel of John, John chapter 15, when we come here, the first thing that we see in order to have a Christ-filled relationship, one must be filled with Christ. Let's look at this. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. And this is the, our quintessential relationship. What is it? It's in Christ. Verse 1 to 6 reads this way. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have, I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned." Right there, as we read that, we find that the basis of Christ-filled relationships is being filled with Christ, being in Christ. And so John, uh, John describes Jesus' relationship with us. Jesus is the true vine. The father is the vine dresser or the farmer. And the branches, which, who are, the branches are the professing believers. The true disciples are those branches, those branches that bear fruit, that are pruned by the Father. And when we come here, the first thing that we see here, that in our relationship with Christ, if we are in Christ, what, do we, what are we like? The first thing that we see is that we have a productive relationship through the Son. As we read in verse 1 and 2, it says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. The only way that a believer can have a relationship with a father is through Jesus Christ, the true vine. 
because the the father of the vine dresser prunes the branches in the true vine. And the father prunes the branches that have fruit so that they may be even more productive, that they may bear even more fruit. So being in Christ, being in this quintessential relationship means that we will have a productive relationship through the Son. And not only does it mean that we have a productive relationship through the Son, but it also tells us that we have a permanent, permanent relationship because of the Son. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. What does Jesus mean that you are already clean in this metaphor? Does it not mean that these branches are washed daily and are cleaned? No, it means that they are already saved. They are already believers. They are Christ's true disciples. Because this word clean is the same word that Jesus uses when he is washing his disciples' feet. And you remember that incident well. When he go, takes his towel and takes his basin of water and wa- wants to wash the disciples' feet, what, how does Peter respond? He's, he, he immediately says no. He can't believe that his Lord wants to wash his feet. And when, when, when Peter says that, Jesus responds that, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part in me. And then Peter says, wash, don't wa- only wash my feet, but my head and my hands also. And when Peter says that, this is the way Jesus responds in John chapter 13, verse 10. Jesus says to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. So what he was saying that you are already saved, but not all of you. Who was he referring to? Not all of you. He was referring to Judas. Judas was not a true believer, was not a true disciple of Christ. Not only do we have a permanent relationship because of the Son, but as we look down to verse 4 to 6, we also see that we have a persevering relationship in the Son. And Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. Jesus makes the point that the, of the importance of being in Christ. He uses the verb abide five times in this passage. The word abide means to remain in place, to stay, or to tarry. So Jesus uses this vine and branch metaphor to help his disciples understand the importance of their absolute dependence on him. Jesus explained to his disciples that the only way to be in a relationship with God the Father and to bear fruit is to be in constant relationship with Jesus Christ, with the vine. So the unmistakable understanding, the takeaway that the disciples would get from this part of Jesus' instruction is that without him, they are absolutely nothing. A persevering relationship in the Son. And because of being in Christ, because of abiding in Christ, this determines how the disciples were to relate to everyone else 
that they would have a relationship with. And the first relationship that Jesus Christ points out to them is their relationship with God. And how does a disciple have a Christ-filled relationship with God? Look at verses 7 to 15. 7 to, uh, 7 to 11. Verses 7 to 11. And this is what Jesus tells them. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. As we look at that passage, it becomes very clear what our relationship with God is. We are to glorify him, to glorify him. That is the nature of our relationship with God. And how is this seen? How do we glorify God? And this is what Jesus tells us. The first way we, the way that, one of the ways we glorify God is by our constant obedience. A Christ-filled, God-glorifying life is marked by obedience. Look at the first part of verse 7. And Jesus says, If you abide in me, my words abide in you. In other words, here Jesus makes it clear what fruit the branches are to bear from the Father's pruning. Jump down to verse 10. This is what, why we need to abide in Christ's words. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You see, here Jesus makes it clear to us. If you abide in me and my word that's abiding in you, why, does we, why do we need his word? So that we can keep his word and abide in his love. This is proof of our love for Christ. It is our obedience to him. The fruit that we bear in our lives to glorify God is our active practice of submission to Jesus Christ. And he repeats it over and over again in scriptures. For example, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And if we are obedient to Christ's commands, if we constantly listen to his word, if we constantly abide in him, then we glorify God by fulfilling God's will. A Christ-filled life is marked by answered prayer. Look at the latter half of verse 7 and verse 8. And Jesus says, Ask whatever you wish, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. We glorify God by remaining in Christ. God is glorified when he answers the prayers of a believer who remains in Christ. A Christ-filled believer will have God's word abiding in him, Christ's words abiding in him, so that when he prays, because Christ's word abides in him, his prayers will be prayed according to God's will. And God is glorified as he answers the prayers which is prayed according to Christ's words, which abide in us. It is amazing. As, as I grew as a believer to learn this, because I, I've been, lots of people have taught me that anything you pray, God will give it to you because of Jesus Christ. 
So early in my younger years, I prayed for a BMW. <laughs> you know what? I never got one. Why? Because that wasn't in God's will. That is not found in the pages of Scripture. What is found there? Imagine if you will, you, 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 you get married, and, and for the first time in your life, you live with this person, this, this, this beautiful lady by day. And then that first night you go to bed and you wake up in the morning and you see things you can eat on her face and curlers on her hair and you scream. <laughs> How in the world can you love this? What can you call it? But God commands us in Ephesians 5 as husbands that we need to love our lives as Christ loved the church. So if we pray that way, we, we see that and we pray, Lord, help me love that apparition I see in the morning that offers me burnt offerings at breakfast. You know what? You will begin to love her like no one else. You will begin to desire her holiness and lead her and love her and teach her in God's word. How about for you wives? As you got married, you learn that there's a new vegetable in this world. It's called a couch potato. <laughs> and, and you know that this is, like, this is the most passive vegetable in the whole wide world. And you look at that belly begin to grow. And you think, Lord, how can I love that belly? How can I respect the belly? But you know what? Ephesians 5 says that. And if you wise, pray that, Lord, help me respect that belly. Help me to be subject to that belly. Help me to understand that fuzzy navel. <laughs> you know what? You're going to be behind your man 100%. We need to pray according to God's will. And fulfilling God's will, we glorify him. And lastly, we glorify God as we live in constant obedience and as we fulfill his will in our prayers. We glorify God by our complete joy, by our complete joy. A Christ-filled life is marked by constant joy. Look at verse 9 to 11. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you abide in my commandments, you abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandment, and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. When we are living a Christ-filled life, when we keep His commandments, when we are praying the prayers that He wants us to pray, then we will have the one and same perfect joy that Jesus Christ has when He has kept His Father's commandments. Our Christ-filled relationship completes, perfects our relationship with the Father in joy. Abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us is the only way to have a fulfilled and complete, a perfect relationship with the Father. As Jesus stated in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But we go to him in complete joy, following his word.
Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing, brothers and sisters? No matter what situation we find ourselves in this world, whether it be in Asia or here, we can have joy. No matter how much your country is changing, you can have that joy because it's in Christ. But Christ does not stop there because he has to deal, he has to tell us as believers, as disciples, how they are to be in relationship with other disciples, other believers. And what does he tell them? Very simply, love them. Look at verses 15, uh, chapter 15, verse 12 to 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. That's amazing. When we read this, we know what we know. We know that we can love our brothers and sisters in Christ no matter how strange or different they may be because of our relationship in Christ. In other words, our relationship with other believers is not based on what they are like, what they, what they do, or what they don't like, or even how they dress. But it's based on our relationship with Christ. In other words, since I've been here in your great, I don't know, from what we understand, this is a great country of Texas, <laughs> you men are real men, right? Uh, later on, in, uh, you'll find out that Chinese men are very different. Uh, so when we came here, we met a real Texan, Tyler. <laughs> I mean, he looks at a salad, and what does he say? You have to wear a skirt when you eat that. He's a real meat and potatoes man, right? But I love salad because where we live, we can't get salad, good salad. So as, as, as he's saying that, he's dissing the salad. And I'm here, I love this salad. But my relationship with him is not based on this, his liking of salad. But because we are in Christ. How can we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Firstly, because of Christ's command. We are able to love fellow believers because Christ commands us. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. Christ commands us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. He is unequivocal about it. We are to love them. But he knows sometimes it's very hard to love our fellow believers. It's not easy, right? Some, some brothers and sisters you meet are stranger than the unbeliever that you know. Isn't that true? Some of them I've just whacked out. <laughs> I mean, what do you do? So Christ knows that. So he doesn't just leave us there. He not only commands us, but he gives us his example. He says in verse 13 to 15, Greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I, com what I command you. 
No longer do I call you slaves, for a slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Christ's example. We are able to love fellow believers because Christ is our model. I mean, where's our love? Can we love that brother? Can I lay down my life for my brother because of salad? No. But Christ has given us that example. And he gives the ultimate example, his own life. We haven't suffered to the point of bleeding for our brothers yet, have we? But Christ has. He's our example. That's an amazing example. Greater love has known than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And, and, but Christ knows that not, his example is not enough. A lot of times, you know, when we're, 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 we're in country and we're trying to teach these people how to follow Christ, how to have biblical families, they, they, you know what they tell us? They say, you can do it because you're American. That's what they say. But it's not about being American. And so we know that even sometimes our example is not enough. Christ's example might not be enough, and Christ knows that. So he gives the ultimate thing that we need to do that. And what's that? Christ's grace. We are able to love fellow believers because of Christ's unmerited grace in our lives. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. We did not choose Christ, but Christ sovereignly chose us. He graciously chose us, not based on any merit or accomplishment of our own. Christ doesn't care that I love salad. Christ doesn't care that I, I, I eat organically. Christ doesn't care if I if I, I am environmentally conscious. Christ loves me because he chose to love me. And likewise, we need to choose to love our brother and sister. Even this guy that has to wear a skirt when he eats salad. <laughs> Amen. So God's purpose of sovereign election is that we bear fruit and it might remain. So we need to bear fruit by loving our unlovable brothers and sisters in Christ and that we need to remain in that love for them because of Christ's grace, because of Christ's example, and because of Christ's command. And this is so important for believers. This is so important for the life of the church that Christ comes back to it so we can love our brothers and sisters in Christ because Christ reminds us to. He admonishes us to. Look at verse 17. He begins with a commandment and he ends with it. But when he ends with it, he is very terse. This I command you, that you love one another. He makes his succinct point. Because this is so important for the life of this church, his body. He doesn't want us to forget it, ever. He wants us to practice it. This is the fruit that we need to bear. And how would people in this world know, know that we are his disciples? By our love for one another. So important to him 
that he reminds us in the same passage. Begins with it, and he ends with it. So that should be the beginning and the end of our lives in this world. The love for our brothers and sisters. But Christ knows that our relationship in this world does not end with God. It does not end with believers. But also, we have relationship with unbelievers. And in Christ's relationship with unbelievers, what are we to do? We are to witness Christ. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. We are to be witnesses to this world because Christ is our example. We witness to unbelievers because Christ models that for us. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Not only can we witness to unbelievers because Christ is our example, but we also can witness to unbelievers because Christ owns us. We witness to unbelievers because we belong to Christ. Look at verse 19 to 20. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Christians do not belong to this world. Not because we never did, but because Christ suddenly chose us out of this world to follow him, to be his. He owns us. Not only do we, are we able to witness to believe unbelievers because Christ owns us and Christ is our example, but also because Christ is our master. Look at verse 21. But all these things you will do for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. Believers are persecuted for the sake of Christ, for his name's sake. And when Jesus says his name's sake, that means we suffer for everything that Christ stands for, who he is and what he has done. Jesus Christ, when he came to his world, he stood for righteousness, for truth, for his work on the cross. The world rejected that. And we are to, we are also persecuted for his name's sake, for his righteousness, for his truth, and for his death on the cross. And we need to witness to unbelievers because unbelievers are condemned. Look at verse 22 to 24. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. In other words, they are condemned because they have rejected Christ. They have not believed in Christ. So we need to go to them with the witness of Christ. We also need to witness unbelievers because unbelievers are self-destructive. They are on their way to doom. They are destroying themselves and they, they don't know it. Look at verse 25. But they have done this in order that the, world may be, the word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. There are examples of people who destroy themselves in scripture because of their rejection, of, because of their work against God. Remember Apostle Paul? He knew that. Acts 26, 14. This is what he, he, he testifies. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? You know what goads are? They're sharp points, pricks. 
If you kick against a sharp point, what are you going to do to your foot? You're going to split it open. You're going to destroy it. You're going to hurt yourself. Paul didn't even know that. So he needed Christ to witness to him. So despite the fact that the world hates us, despite the fact that the world hates our Lord Jesus Christ, and everything that we do, they rail against. We are persecuted. We are able to bear witness of our Lord Jesus Christ to them, despite their enmity towards us. In other words, our relationship to the world is not determined by their unmitigated animosity towards us, but because of our abiding relationship in Christ. Because in ourselves, why would we want to give the truth to these people that hate us and work against us? Why would we want to tell people who persecute us, who, who want to destroy everything that we cherish, who make this world an evil place for us and our children to live in? It's because we are in Christ. And that is a hard thing to do, isn't it? But you know what? Christ gives us the grace to do it. We can witness to unbelievers because of Christ's indwelling spirit. Look at verse 26 to 27. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. Although, although Jesus is uniquely using this to, um, to, to um, tell his disciples what what's, will happen, we also know that the helper indwells every believer. So we can witness because of his indwelling parents, uh, his indwelling presence. And finally, we witness to unbelievers because of the glory of God. 1 Peter 3.17 says, For it is better if God should will, should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than what, for doing what is wrong. 1 Peter 2.12 Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, on account of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, our witness about Christ is not just our words, but our very lives, how we live it out in the face of persecution. That our behavior is always excellent. That is our, our concrete witness to them, that we live what we preach, that we live out the abiding words of Christ in our lives. And by that, we glorify God. And not that amazing thing is that on that day, they will also glorify God because of our behavior of the abiding word of Christ in us. Isn't that amazing? So when we come to the end of this, we can answer that question, how should a Christian live? We need to be filled in Christ. We need to be in Christ. We need to abide in Christ. And abiding in Christ gives us a foundation on how we live our lives in this world. A Christ-filled life is a spirit-filled life. A Christ-filled life is a life which bears more and more fruit in constant and growing obedience to Christ. A Christ-filled life is the foundation to having Christ-filled relationships. A Christ-centered life is the key to every relationship we would ever have in our entire lives. A Christ-filled life enables us to glorify God unceasingly. 
A Christ-filled life exhorts us to love our brothers and sisters unconditionally. A Christ-filled life encourages us to be witnesses for Christ to our enemies unrelentingly. Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the words of Christ and how profound they are that give us the purpose and direction in our life and how to live here and how to survive in this world that hates us, that hates you, hated you first. Help us, Lord, to glorify you. Help us to love our brothers and sisters and help us to witness to those who hate us for the glory of God. In Christ's name we pray, amen.